done, and boy, I can only, uh, I wish we had the time just to describe the blessings I've uh, received just from that original meeting. And uh, I just want to say how privileged I am to be with you uh, this week or this weekend to share with you from God's Word and to talk about something that's really on my heart, and that's reaching the world for Christ. I uh, uh, am excited to, to, to be here and to share with you uh, in this. And uh, I have to say, when I was called um, uh, earlier to, uh, to be your speaker, uh, I, I looked over at my, my wife and I said, uh, hey, Kate Bible Chapel just asked me to, uh, to be their missions conference speaker again. And uh, she looked at me, and she was a little bit puzzled, and she said, you think they're in a bind for speakers? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, probably, but I don't want to think about it like that. We could. I, uh, I am uh, uh, really excited about sharing God's Word. The great thing is, is that we've probably run out of things that Brian has to say about missions, uh, but the good news is, is the Bible, God has a lot more to say about missions than I could possibly say. I also want to just, uh, just while I have this opportunity, I don't get this opportunity also, just to tell you how grateful I am on behalf of myself, my family, uh, but also all the campus outreach staff who you guys support prayerfully, financially, uh, emotionally. It's amazing uh, what you guys do for us. You guys, uh, I've, I've walked into probably three different people already since I've been in the building who have said, Man, we have been praying for you. Charlie Thurman called me uh, the night before last just to apologize for not being here. He said, oh, Brian, you know, I'm not going to be here, and I'm down in Dallas visiting my family. I wouldn't have planned this vacation if I'd have known you were coming and, and that kind of thing. And I, I played it back for my wife last night just to, it's like, man, what an encouragement. So thank you all so much for having uh, uh, me and, and Grant. I brought my son. Now, many of you don't remember Grant, uh, but... Uh, He's uh, probably the last time you saw him, he was probably about 13 years old. I would say from the time he left Cape Bible Chapel the last time until now, he's had his largest growth spurt. And, uh, and I think it was about four years ago that we were probably pulling out of here and we were having this real intellectual conversation as we always do in our car, especially when our children were, uh, were younger. And, uh, and Grant made the statement, it's like, you know, I'm probably not going to be as tall as Dad and, uh, and Joanne said, well, Grant, why would you say that? And it's like, well, I think your genes are going to pull me down, Mom. <laughs> and so Grant has just recently passed me in height. And, uh, and so Joanne was quick to remind him. She said, not only did my genes not hold you back, but I added speed to the equation. Just want to let you know. So, well, if you have your Bible, uh, open up to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I've actually preached out of this beforehand, but I want to come at it from a different angle this time. And I think as, as we talk the, over the course of this weekend, I think there's a couple of things that I've really been praying that you would get. One is that Jesus Christ is central to missions. So no matter how, whatever angle we come at this thing, Jesus Christ is always central to missions. Another thing that I've really been praying for is that each of these sermons would have something in it that would, that would set a trajectory for whatever the next step is in your missions. We're going to look at one of those things tonight, but each night, we're going to, or each time, each sermon, uh, we're going to look at something that I think will set you on a trajectory uh, to see missions take place in your life 
uh, and, and through your life. Pray with me. <coughs> Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, I thank you for this family. I thank you for their care for me and my family. I thank you for the hearts here. Thank you that uh, you are, have brought the gospel to Cape Girardeau through this church. Father, I thank you that you're taking it to the ends of the earth through this church as well. Lord, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts this weekend. Lord, that you would give us a new vision, an expanded vision that's not based on our abilities, that's not based on our skills, that's not based on our past experiences, Lord, but it would be based on, on your character and your promises. Lord, give us your eyes to see this weekend and thrust us out into the harvest field. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk about this idea of launch and trajectory. You know, the way you launch anything in life, it doesn't matter what it is, sets a course for the success or failure of whatever it is you're launching. So the way you, the, 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 the way you launch something sets a trajectory for the success or the failure of anything that you endeavor in your life. Let me give you a quick illustration and a story to describe that. Back in 1911, there were two groups of explorers led by two different men. One was Ruel Amundsen, who was a Norwegian. The other was Robert F. Scott. They basically set off on an 800-mile mission to the South Pole. Both reached the pole. However, Scott arrived at the pole only to find that the Norwegian flag had already been raised in a note from Amundsen that said that he had been there four weeks ago. Amundsen eventually became the first man in history to reach both the North and the South Pole. That's what both of these guys were after to be the first. Scott and his men died a few weeks later on their trek back from the South Pole. Both knew where they were going. They had the same destination, but both had two radically different outcomes. They had two radically different trajectories. What was the difference? Let me give you a couple of things as I read about these two men. One difference was the amount of preparation that was put into it. Amundsen, the Norwegian, studied the area and determined the best way to travel. He actually went to the North Pole and studied the Eskimos and learned how they did life. He broke the trips down into incremental stages along the way. He thought about every single need. He anticipated all the problems, and he considered every possible aspect of the journey. Scott, on the other hand, mostly just pulled from his experience. It's like, I got this. We can do this. I've done this before. So preparation really set a radically different trajectory for these men. Another thing were, was the decisions that they made. Munson really made good decisions. He chose to use dogs to get there as opposed to Scott, who used motorized sleds. You can imagine what happened when the motorized sleds broke down and they were out there without anything to, to do the work for them. Amundsen was single-minded to the task. He made, he made decisions that made his trip lighter. On the other hand, Scott decided that he would pick up rocks along the way and collect things for uh, study's sake, and, and he added all kinds of activities along the way. Here's the difference, preparation and decisions. Both were clear on their destination, but one charted a good course that set a trajectory 
And he overcame the obstacles along the way while the other one didn't. Now, here's the point. Here's the question as we think about that. What launches and sets a trajectory for missions that is effective, that's contagious, that's impactful, that actually accomplishes its goal? That's the question that I want to pose to you tonight. And that's a good question when you think about it. What is it that launches the kind of trajectory that we, we dream of when we talk about missions? If I ask you that question, what would you say? Some of you, I would say probably if I poll most Christians, they would say the number one thing that sets a trajectory for missions is the need of world evangelism. And man, that's a great motive. Some of you might be thinking, well, it could have something to do as, as, as you describe that need or as you think about that need. There's 6.8 billion people in the world, and probably maybe 4 billion of them, is, you know, depending on who you read, may not even know Christ. There's 16,598 people groups. Again, there's, there's different groups who number this different, so I chose the one with the, the most uh, people groups out there. Yet there's 6,918 that are still unreached. Or you can think about the, the 1040 window, and, and within that 1040 window, there's, there's about 4 billion Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus in the world. You, you could really make a case that, that the thing that would really set us on a trajectory in world missions for world evangelization would be the need. And that would be a really, really good motive. But I would say that it would fall short. There's something far greater than even the need that's out there. And here's what I think is the answer. It's the authority of Jesus Christ. Really, there's two things that I want you to see here in this passage uh, tonight. I want you to see that the authority of Christ is the basis for missions. And number two, that the authority of Christ is what sets the trajectory for missions. Let's look at this for a second. Let's read the passage. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's look at the authority of Christ and how it's the basis for missions. Let's think about Jesus' authority for a second. First of all, we see in this passage that Jesus proves his authority. The way he proves it is by his resurrection. We were singing about this a while ago. Think about the context of this passage. Jesus has just risen from the grave. And in, in the second, at least that we have recorded here in Matthew, the second encounter he has is with the disciples gathered around him at this mountain there in Galilee. So he has died for sin to triumph over our sin and guilt and over the condemnation that comes with that. He has been triumphed, he has been raised from the dead to triumph over suffering and death. And he's also triumphed over Satan who can only destroy us with the very thing that he's already destroyed. That's guilt and condemnation. And torment us to suffering and death. And Jesus is standing here giving this commission 
over the grave, resurrected, alive. See, this is, this is really what Easter is about. And, and next week is Easter, so this is a great, a timely event for Easter. But, but this is what Easter is about. It's about the risen Christ as your king. And he has absolute, unlimited authority over your life. Easter is God's open declaration that he lays claim on every person, every tribe, every tongue and nation around the world. Easter has to do with power and authority. It's just the opposite of how we market Easter, isn't it? It's really about Easter bunnies and and baskets full of candy and fake little grass and, and that kind of thing. It's anything but that, folks. It's about power and authority and the king coming out of the grave and and claiming his domain. It's the whole earth is his. And that's the context of this passage. What he's really doing is this is the the king sending forth his armies to declare his domain. That's what Easter is all about. He proves his authority with his resurrection. Anybody that can beat death, anybody that can beat sin, anybody that can beat guilt and condemnation, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He proves it. But Jesus also, here in this passage, we see that he claims his authority. He says in the passage, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the interesting thing about that, he's really probably just declaring what everybody else who is encountering him right now is thinking. It's like, there. you can imagine the disciples are standing around thinking to themselves like, holy gal, I, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to ask right now. All I know is to do what every fiber in my being is wanting me to do right now, and that is bow down in worship, in reverence, and in fear, and in awe, in joy, in peace. They were probably had all these mixed emotions going on. It's like they have no category for this. This is the king who has come out of the grave, and he basically just declares what everybody is thinking. But we see in verse 16 that the first thing they did when they saw him is they fell down and they worshipped him. This is the only appropriate thing you can do for the one who has just conquered death and resurrected to life. Their hearts are filled with this. Thirdly, as it relates to his authority, Jesus defines his authority in an implicit way. Let me give you three things here. That, so when we ask the question, what exactly does he mean? When he says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, what does he mean? Let me give you three things. Number one, he's saying that he controls all things by his power. Jesus controls all things by his power. Jesus is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and he has the power to prove it. We just talked about that. So when he said that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, here's what he's saying, that there is nothing in heaven and on earth over which he does not have absolute and complete control. Every kind of force, every kind of dominion is in his hands. This is what it means that Jesus has complete authority, is that he controls all things by his power. Number two, It also means that Jesus has the right to direct all things as he pleases. When he says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, here's essentially what he's saying. He's saying that there is nothing in heaven and on earth over which he does not have the absolute right 
to do as he pleases. Think about that for a second. So not only does he have the power, he has the right to do as he pleases. Therefore, he not only possesses all of this infinite power to direct and to do as he pleases, but he has the the right to do so. It is a relationship between might and right. Why? Because he's God. Because he's one with the Father. He's the creator and the sustainer of the whole universe. The same hand that just a few moments ago were pierced now wield the scepter of the universe and on the brows that were wounded and bleeding with the crown of thorns are wreathed the many crowns of the universal kinghood. This is your Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. I was reminded of, uh, of, of, of someone who had power uh, two weeks ago uh, but didn't have authority. I was, I was going through an airport in Atlanta and... Um, um, I was thinking, you know, you're always kind of, when you're sitting outside waiting on your plane to get there, you're always kind of checking the crowd out thinking, you know, I wonder who I really don't want to sit next to on this plane. And I picked, I picked the folks out that I was thinking. It's like, there's this woman there, and I have no idea, so I, I probably would forgive me if I'm, if I'm being critical of, of, of a situation that I shouldn't be, but, man, her child was out of control. And it didn't take but about two minutes to realize that. I mean, the kid was was screaming and yelling, and he was running along, and he stepped in somebody else's. They had just put their sandwich down, I mean, a total stranger, and they were reaching in the bag, and he steps right in it and keeps going. It's like his mom, oh, I'm sorry. And, she's, and so I was like, man, I hope these folks don't sit next to me on the plane. Sure enough. It's like, that's exactly, it's like right over here. And, man, I literally thought that we were going to have to make the whole plane wait because this kid would not put his seatbelt on. He's like, please, little Johnny, you know, if you do, I've got strawberries and I've got, you know, uh, all this kind of stuff in the bag and stuff. He's like, I'm not putting it on. And then he turned around and he slapped his mom. And I literally just almost came out of my seat at that point. It's like, kid, I am putting your seatbelt on. Get it together. It's like, obviously, but here's the thing. I mean, it went on the whole trip. I mean, everybody in the whole plane was, was talking about it. It was just one of those weird situations. I mean, it was loud, and he was screaming, and he was throwing things, and totally out of control. And I just couldn't help but to think, it's like, man, this woman has all the power in the world. And every now and then, she'd turn around and straighten him up and stuff, and he would just in defiance. But she had no authority in his life whatsoever. She had threatened him for so long with all this power, but her word had no authority. And so her son would look at her and say, who in the world do you think you are to tell me to obey you? Well, this is the exact opposite with Jesus. He has power and he has the right to back it up. Thirdly, Jesus strongly supports his people with his abiding presence. We really see this down at the end of verse 20 there. It says there at the end, after he's commissioned his disciples to go out and reach the nations, he says this, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So part of his authority is not just his power, part of his authority is not just his right, but part of his authority is that he strongly supports his people with his abiding presence to go do his work. And you see, as you think about his power, as you think about his, his right, you think about the fact, it's logical, logical 
to conclude that, that Jesus has universal presence. And so it doesn't surprise you when you see this. Yeah, God is everywhere and he doesn't forsake his people and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it means far more than that. Essentially, when he says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, he is saying that there is nothing in the heavenlies or on earth that will separate you from the covenant presence of God. He's saying, I am your God and you are my people. And I will bring all my power, all my strength, all everything I've got to your aid as you go out and you accomplish this mission. So Jesus is not just passively present. He's not just there to offer comfort when we, when we bungle up our knee or anything like that. No, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords with all power and the right to do whatever he pleases. And he's bringing all his strength and resources to you, his missionaries. And man, that sets a trajectory for your life, does it not? And that's why you see here the word, therefore. The word therefore is therefore uh, to, to make you ask this question here in this passage. Here's the question. So what did Jesus do, choose to do with his authority? We've built up his authority. Okay, Jesus, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. What are you going to choose to do with it? Here's what he did. He launched his disciples with a trajectory to reach the world for Christ. So, he controls all things in his power. He has the right to direct all things what he pleases. And he strongly supports his people with his abiding presence to do what? To go conquer the world. To go claim what is already his. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. His authority sends us out. It launches us with power. So, the authority of Christ is the basis for missions. But the authority of Christ, what does he do with it? It sets a trajectory for our missions. When I was a kid, I can remember that uh, every year around New Year's, we would, uh, we would have a big celebration, my family. We would go down to South Mississippi. And, uh, and the thing that I used to love, uh, one of my grandmothers for, uh, was uh, she would always give us fireworks. July the 4th and New Year's, and buddy, we would get the fireworks, and we were so excited to get the fireworks. But, but the way we did fireworks is we would start off with the firecrackers and the little smoke bombs, and, the, you know, and then we'd move up to bottle rockets, and, and, uh, and then we would get to the little bigger rockets. But we always knew that when, when the night was about, when we had scraped the bottom of all the fireworks, there was going to be just a huge, massive rocket in that thing. And man, it was, that's what we all look forward to. And uh, I don't know how much they had probably cost more than all the other fireworks put together. But I can remember thinking to myself as my parents would put us behind a tree, uh, especially my mom, because she didn't trust my dad uh, lighting that thing. And, um, and he would light that thing up and we would all run behind the tree. And just, man, when that thing started spewing fire out of the bottom it was just unbelievable the propulsion and then it would grow, it would go up in there and it would explode about a mile up in there it was just unbelievable but I was so overwhelmed uh, and enamored by the power of this thing that it would launch this rocket with well in the same way this is exactly how Jesus comes to our mission the authority of Christ sets the trajectory 
for missions. Now, let me give you three ways in which he does that. Number one is by his authority, Jesus defines our mission. You see, we don't get to define our mission as Christian. Jesus, who has all authority, defines our mission. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. I'm talking about our mission in general. Now, you can personalize that mission. You live here in Cape Girardeau, so, so this mission has very personal emotions and feelings and places and, and faces and, and that kind of thing. So there's a personalized side to this, and, and everybody ought to be really good at, at whatever they do is, is, is taking this mission and making it personal and, and making it even more specific to their area. But in a general sense, God defines our mission with his authority. It's not complex. Let me give you two things. And usually, I would do this talk, I, generally, historically, the way I've done the Great Commission and talked about the Great Commission is I've spent most of my time talking on what we're trying to do. And tonight, I really kind of felt like the Lord was leading me to focus on the one who sins because really what we're supposed to do is very simple. He gives us two things here in the passage. One is to make disciples. Two, he gives us the scope, and it's all nations. That's pretty simple. It's like that AT&T commercial. You've seen the guy sitting there with the four children. And he's like, you know, which is better, faster or slower? Which is better, bigger or smaller? Which is better? You know, and he goes through, and they're all getting all that. And then at the end, he's like, it's not complex. It may be hard, but it's not complex. But you know what I find in my own heart many times is that when I want to be disobedient, that's when it gets really complex. I can remember when I was growing up, my dad used to tell me to mow the yard. And, uh, and for us, that was, a, that was a stinking all-day affair. It took like six or seven hours to mow our yard. And to be honest with you, we lived in the woods. I don't really know that there's anything that you would qualify that you would actually mow with a lawnmower. So we went one of those big old, you know, uh, uh, Yazoo lawnmowers with the big thing. They, you know, it was almost like practically a tank. <coughs> and I would, I, would, I would start asking questions like, well, do you want me to, to just mow the side? There's really not, there's not anything but weeds over there. And it's like, son, mow the, mow the grass, mow the, mow the yard. It's like, well, okay, <coughs> what about the side yard? I don't really know that it's, uh, it's really gotten that high or anything like that. What do you think about that? It's like, son, mow the yard. What, Dad, you know, it's kind of steep over there on the, on the side. You know, I almost kind of lost it last time. And, and, son, mow the yard. It's not that complex. But it's amazing how things get so complex when we really don't want to do it in our hearts. So, Jesus comes. He defines our mission. Make disciples of all nations. Now, let's talk about this idea of making disciples just briefly here. There's really two parts to making disciples, and I think we see them here in the passage as we understand what make disciples is all about. There's two parts, evangelism and discipleship. Why would I say that? Well, to make disciples, first of all, the word actually means to be a follower or a learner of someone, in this case, Jesus Christ. So in order to be a follower or a learner of Jesus Christ, you've got to be following it. You've got to be regenerate. That is what a disciple of Christ really is. But there's a sense in which we're also <coughs> following Christ and growing in him. That has to do with 
discipleship. So, now, let's talk about evangelism just briefly. I'm going to talk about this more actually tomorrow morning. But here's the bottom line. Here's, here's my bottom line thought on evangelism is that we are not to sit around and wait on the world to come to us. And I think that's exactly the point of the skit there. We're not supposed to wait around for the world to come to us to share Christ with them. We're to go out into the world and preach Christ. Christianity, because of the authority of Christ, has got to be aggressive. I don't mean in your face. I don't mean insensitive. But it's got to have assertiveness. There's got to be intentionality. There's got to be passion. It's contagious. Think about the rocket burst, the authority of Christ. We take the word, we proclaim the gospel to the people. It launches us out there. Let me say one other thing about evangelism. Evangelism is the ultimate part of what we do in ministry. If I could describe it like this, there's a, there's a debate, a common debate that goes on uh, out there in, in Christendom, and it, and it kind of goes like this. It kind of goes, it's like, well, man, you know, um, there's, evangelism is really important. The proclamation of the gospel. Maybe that would be a better way to say what I'm trying to, to say here. The proclamation of the gospel. But also, there's, there's deeds of kindness and mercy and compassion that go along with that. And so some would illustrate this as saying, you know, the, the ministry of the gospel is kind of like this. You have the proclamation of the gospel on one side and then the deeds of mercy and compassion and just our life and so on and so forth and those things. And surely there's a congruency that has to happen here. But if I could, if I could propose, here's what I don't like about that illustration. It says that those things are, are equal. In other words, I could go build a school that would minister to, to children maybe in an impoverished area in Memphis and it would be just as valuable and just as have the same ultimate consequences that it would be to lead those same children to Christ. Here's a, here's a better way. I, and really, they are both. They are both part of the gospel. They're both part of evangelism. But maybe this is a better way to, uh, to communicate this, is that when we think of ministry and evangelism, the proclamation of the, of the gospel is like the bow of the ship as it moves into the harbor is that the bow comes in, but you know loaded in the ship is all kinds of transformational goods. So as the gospel is proclaimed in any ministry, guess what it brings with it? It changes schools. It changes, it changes the way people think about their business. It changes families. It changes whole societies. It brings the GPA up. In schools, it's amazing. I see it right there. It's like we did an experiment there in Memphis several years ago, and we just we sent about 300 people to this school for several years, just helping them, bringing the good news of the gospel and the good works and, and so on and so forth. And it's amazing. It took that school, and five years later, it took their GPA up uh, amazingly. Just It transformed the whole school system. That's what the gospel does. And with the gospel is loaded all kinds of good that transforms a whole society. We know that the gospel is holistic and it impacts everything. But if you just bring all the goods apart from the bow of the ship, how am I going to interpret what those goods, why they're here, where they came from? And what they have to do with my life. I have no interpretive framework. That's what the gospel does. It makes all of it fit. So, 
in that illustration, I'm not saying that, that as you bring the ministry to a new territory, that the gospel has to be proclaimed always on the front end. It can be, I'm, what the point of it is that, is that the gospel is ultimate in the process. Secondly, discipleship. So it involves evangelism and discipleship. Man, so encouraged uh, by the videos and you know, the Roddies are here and representing Wycliffe. Discipleship is all about bringing God's word to bear in people's lives. You talk about authority. Uh, that's where authority is. And so when we bring God's word to bear in people's discipleship takes place. But if I could make just one other comment about discipleship, here's one of the things that I've noticed over the years, that I've never seen effective discipleship where people were not getting involved in people's lives. So in other words, it's inadequate to call discipleship in and of itself is just teaching like I'm doing with you right now. now this is God's word. It, I don't have to make excuses for it. It's powerful. Uh, God can make it do its own things. But I think, I think what we see in scriptures is even the way Jesus discipled his people is he brought the word. He said that he gave them his truth. But man, he massaged this into their very souls. Let me give you six things to think about that might characterize your discipleship. And it involves giving your life away to people. Number one is you, you do it in front of them. So you do God's word in front of them. Number two, you do it with them. So whatever you're learning in your discipleship group or whatever you're learning from the pulpit, you go out and you do it together. So you do it in front of them. You do it with them. Number three, you teach them why. Why is the foundational question for all things? If you don't know why you do what you do, then you won't do it for very long. And the why always has to be rooted in Scripture in order for it to be a real scriptural conviction that has authority in your life. You need to know the whys. So you do it in front of them. You do it with them. You teach them why. You show them how God's Word applies to their lives. You keep them going. That's accountability. And then finally, you help them reproduce it. Help them reproduce it. This is not just for you, and it's not just for me. We're supposed to reproduce this, and therefore, it aids to reaching the world for Christ. The world is populating uh, through multiplication, and we've got to keep up with it. So evangelism and discipleship. Secondly, that has to do with make disciples. Secondly, we're talking about doing this with all nations. It only makes sense as you look back at the authority of Christ and the magnitude of this. So just as the Lord's authority extends over all the earth, so should the commission of these disciples extend over all the earth. Just as his authority has no political, geographical, or religious boundaries, neither does this commission. And you know what? I would imagine these young men from... Galilee and other parts in that area, uh, it's amazing that Jesus brought them back to this mountain in, on, on Galilee. It's like of all places to launch your worldwide conquest. I would imagine that these are not by nature men of great vision. But when they encountered the authority of the risen Lord, I have to believe that it raised the trajectory of what they thought could even be possible for their lives. 
You see, the focus is not to be on where you come from. Good grief, I'm from Selma, Alabama, of all armpits of a place to grow up. Uh, some of you uh, are from small towns, or, or, or maybe you, you don't feel like you have the education that you need, or, or you don't feel like you have some of the training that you need. It's not about all that. That helps. Equipping is important. It's about the authority of Christ who launches us into the nations. Without his presence, these men would have never been able to contemplate this world mission, this world conquest. Now, here's the point of saying that. Jesus is bringing his authority to bear by defining the mission. Here's what we have to do. Here's how we respond, is we align ourselves behind it. So choosing our mission is not really an option. You know what? I think I'll just do this and call it Jesus' mission. It doesn't work that way. Jesus defines the mission because he has all authority. And then we align and order and plan and design our lives so that it's in alignment with his mission. Here's the second part of what he does with his authority. By his authority, Jesus will accomplish his mission. Only because of his authority do we have any hope of success. God's power is efficacious. You know what that means? That's a really big word, but here's what it means. When I say God's power is efficacious, it simply means this. It simply means that it always accomplishes its purpose. God never fails to accomplish what he sets out to do. And you might be thinking, it's like, well, golly, it doesn't feel like we're really winning in world evangelism. Let me just make this comment here. Um, I was reading this, and I, I don't have out the side here. It's not my words, but it's a quote. It says, creatures may oppose him to be sure, but they cannot prevail. For his own reasons, he has, uh, he has chosen to delay the fulfillment of his intentions for the end of history and to bring about those intentions through a complicated historical sequence of events. In about those intentions, through a complicated, uh, I'm sorry, in, um, in that sequence, his purpose or his purposes appear sometimes to suffer defeat and sometimes to achieve victory. Here's all that he's saying there as I shattered this great quote with my poor reading skills. Here's what he was saying. is Sometimes it just doesn't feel like we're, we're winning. But if God has all authority and he has all power over everything and he directs things according to his pleasure, then no matter what it may seem right now, God is winning. He is providentially governing whatever it is he's governing to his end, to his purposes. I mean, can you imagine what the Israelites felt like at different times in their history? Did they have a trajectory towards winning? Absolutely. Do, can you imagine? Uh, <coughs> well, I think back here, one of the most tragic things that ever happened on U.S. soil was 9-11 when I was living here. And man, at the time, it's like, Callie, this is the most horrific thing. I remember sitting in front of my television with some others just just praying and weeping and it's like oh my goodness 3,000 people just lost their lives and not to mention all the the little boys and little girls who just lost their daddies and their mamas and their grandparents and their brothers and sisters 
What a horrific event. What could we possibly, and I remember Coach Billings asked me to come over and speak to the football team. It's like, good grief. What, what could I possibly say? But you know what? The next day, a guy by the name of Chuck McElroy called me up, who I'd been trying to evangelize, and he couldn't have been any ruder to me the first couple of times. I mean, he blew me off like I had bad breath. And man, 9-11 happens, and he's on the phone, and he sits down in front of me. It's like, man, I just I don't even know what to ask you for, but I just want to give my life to something that matters. My life has just come into the context of death, and I want to live for what's eternal, for what, something that's significant. Some of you guys remember Ryan Roth. He came to Christ uh, a month later. And, man, now I think about these guys. It's like they were just football players living their own lives, living for themselves in what seemed like an absolute tragedy, and in some sense it was. God redeems and makes it victorious, brings people to himself, and transforms whole nations and peoples out of an event that looks like, in our estimation, an absolute tragedy and defeat. Here's the thing that we have to remember, is that, is that as we talk about this, God doesn't even need us. Does he? He chooses to use us, but he doesn't need us. He takes great pleasure. But at the same time, with his authority, he's commanding us to embrace his mission. I remember years ago, uh, my pastor there in, uh, in uh, Memphis was telling a story. And, you know, if you live in Memphis, you got all these oak trees, and it's like, I remember when I was moving to Memphis, I was like, well, one thing we're not going to do, we're not going to buy a house with all these oak trees and stuff like that. And guess what we have? It's like we, we probably rake up 150 bags a year of leaves. So I've eaten my words. But I remember him telling this story. He's like, you know, in the fall, I get my kids out there, and we're raking, and I got the whole family, and, and, uh, and we're all raking and stuff like that. But you know what? Inevitably, I'm out there, walk, you know, trying to get cleaned up, and I've got the eye of the tiger. I'm trying to get this thing. And he said, my kids... It's like, Daddy, I want to help. And so he gets a, a rake, and he gets and he's like, so I brought my family their own rakes. Everybody had their own rake, and they all come out there. And I took such great pleasure. Just, and inevitably, they were just making a mess. They were jumping in my piles, and they were spreading the leaves out just as almost as, and it, and it, but, but as a father, I just take great pleasure. I'm going to get the, the yard raked, but I take great pleasure in using in, in doing it with my children. In so many ways, this is exactly like world evangelism. Is the Father, the Lord of the harvest, is out there, and, and he, could, he could do it any way he wanted to, but he's chosen a very specific way. He's, to, he's chosen to use his children. And to be honest with you, I'm a lot like that child, and probably, if you're honest with yourself, you are too. I make a lot more messes than I really get the piles up. But you know what I know and I take comfort in is the Heavenly Father enjoys and, and takes great uh, 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 love and satisfaction in watching me and supporting me and being His harvest field and bringing in the leaves. So, by His authority, Jesus has defined our mission. By His authority, Jesus will accomplish His mission. But finally... <laughs> By his authority, Jesus strongly supports those faithful to his mission. So we've already talked about that little promise there at the end, this little covenant promise. And, and, and here's the thing. It's like we all want to claim 
the promise, but it's connected to a very specific command. What he's saying here, if you will engage and be obedient to what I've told you to do, to make disciples of all nations, I will bring everything I've got to bear in your life. And you know what? To be honest with you, this is kind of a love-hate type thing. I have to admit, it's like as I have followed Christ, he always leads me into things that are far bigger than I am. And I hate that, to be honest with you. Why? Because it takes me out of control of my own life. It takes me out of my comfort zones. I, I've got things. I thought when I was 22 years old and I, I kind of pushed through some comfort zones, it's like, whoo, I'm out on the other side of this. That probably won't be intimidating. And I turned around and God had one more thing that he was on. It's like, whoo, get through that. And here I am, I'm 47 years old, and I've got things that I'm facing right now. It's like, Lord, this is so much bigger than me. I can't do this. And at the same time, as I step out in obedience in what little faith I have, I would not trade the, the experience of seeing God's power brought to bear in my weak little fragile life in the ministry that I'm putting for anything in the whole world. There is something that you are able to taste and experience when you put your hand to the plow of God's mission that you can't experience in any other fashion other than obeying his commandment to go make disciples of the nations. He brings everything he's got. He brings his support and his presence to you. <clears throat> Think about this. Think about all the promises and the things that he says in the scriptures that reminds of this. Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus said, I will show you great and mighty things. Nothing shall be impossible to you. Ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over the, all the power of the enemy. And nevertheless, nothing shall injure you. Greater things shall you do. Isn't that amazing? God has promised to bring everything he's got to bear in your life as you put your hands to the plow of this mission. Think about if you would have been one of the disciples. It would have been really hard to be satisfied with anything less than the trajectory that he set for him. I mean, think about it like this. Why would you want to tread on water when you can walk on it? Why would you want to move anthills when you can move mountains? Why would you want to spearfish when you can have nets full of fish? Why would you want to, to feed a few when you can feed 5,000? Who would want a 30-fold return when you can have a 100-fold return? Man, God brings his authority to bear as you engage his mission. I have to say this as a fellow co-laborer with you, that I struggle with that sometimes. I struggle with believing that. I need God's help. I need your help. I need your encouragement. We need each other to keep reminding us that we serve the God who has all authority. I'll share with you one of the things in closing here that's really been on my heart for, uh, for a long time, and I feel like God has been shaping me uh, for this for a long time, <coughs> but it scares the bejabbers out of me, and that is just that, that God would make campus outreach and the people that we reach more ethnically diverse and culturally multicultural. And, and here's what, what brought this about in my own heart, in my own mind, is I began to ask myself, it's like, how in the world are we going to send out laborers 
to reach the different cultures and the different ethnicities of the world if we don't even do it on our own campus, right there where they're all, you know, in living in dormitories and stuff like that. And so we begin praying and asking God, God, would you raise up different ethnicities on our campus? Would you show us how to be multicultural and not so monocultural and how we think and, and stuff like that? And here's what we said. It's like, God, would you start right here in our African-American community? And, and you know what? God began to answer that prayer. One of the first guys he raised up, the first guy he raised up, was a guy by the name of Tony Dentman. And you guys all know Tony. And man, God has raised up three others who have come on staff, African-American staff. We were praying, you know, five years ago, that felt like a pipe dream. And now God is bringing that about. But man, you should see the following behind those guys. Not just African-American people, international people, white people. It's all over the place. God is building something that is such an expression of the gospel. I couldn't even begin to to try to describe it to you. And, And and just because we've stepped out and done it, it's made our ministry healthier. It's made our ministry bigger. And here's what, at the end game, I really think it's going to make us more qualified to go to the nations because we're learning these things right here on the college campus. I saw God raise up. It's like, Lord, where am I going to get the money for this? And just in the month of July this past year, God raised up $60,000 on top of what had already been raised just to be able to do some things. Totally caught me off guard. This fall... We raised $12,000 just to get students to the New Year's conference. And and it's just amazing some of the things that have happened. So, what is it that sets a trajectory for our missions? It's the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority. It's not the needs. There's a lot of them, and that's a good motivation. It's not the blessings of the gospel. Man, we love those blessings, and we want people to have them. What is it that's going to set a trajectory? It's the authority of Jesus Christ and that alone. That'll be the only thing that will set a trajectory that will actually go to the ends of the earth because there ain't nothing out there that can provide that much propulsion except for his authority. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, Give us, give us eyes to see, eyes of faith. Lord, let us, let us stand firmly on your authority, not in insecurity or fear. Lord, may we trust that you will bring, if we step out there and do whatever it is that you desire for us to be obedient to, Lord, may we trust and believe you that you will meet us there in strength and in power no matter what it looks like, no matter if it appears that we're winning or losing, that we would would be able to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, would you set a trajectory for our lives? Would you set a trajectory for this church? Would you set a, a trajectory for all these missions partners that are here? And may that trajectory get us to the ends of the earth with the gospel. In Jesus' name.